you have a copy of God's Word, be finding the 16th chapter of 1 Samuel. That's where we're going to begin this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you're not sure how to find it, the best way to do it would be to use your app on your iPhone or your, your iPad or tablet. Uh, but if you want to go using the old-fashioned way, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then the book of 1 Samuel. 15 chapters in, you'll be right where we're going to begin this morning. Three things I want to bring to your attention before we get started. Number one, Easter's coming. Don't know if you uh, recognize that or not. It's going to be here before you know it. There are invite cards on the table back here. We're going to have brunch for everybody in between the two services. We are going to have a backdrop for people to take family photos. We're going to have a great time that day. It's normally, as you can imagine, a larger crowd than normal. I don't think it's be unreasonable to see 1,200 people on this campus over this over that weekend. And so that's kind of a goal that I'm aiming for at least. Nobody else on the staff or among the elders knows that. I just told you all that just now. Uh, but I think that's I think that's certainly a reachable goal. Looking forward to seeing um, uh, this place packed out and just really celebrating the resurrected Lord together. So get ready for it. Get those invite cards. Get your family and friends here. We're going to have a great time together. Uh, number two, just before Easter on April the 8th, uh, Joe Recca will be here. He's a rising star comedian out of Baltimore. And for $60 per couple, which is about what you'd pay per individual to go down to Charlestown to see a show, you'll get not only the show, you'll get a three-course meal and your child care, all inclusive in that event. It's on April the 8th. Uh, seats are filling up pretty quick. You don't have to be a married couple to do it. This is a marriage ministry-sponsored thing at our church. But you don't have to be a married couple. You can come, bring a, a significant other, bring a friend, whoever you want to bring. And the, right through those doors, Kathy's going to be behind the table to get you signed up. If you'd like to do that, we've got just another few days uh, before we have to close registration on that. So if you want to sign up, get it done. And then last but not least, right after this service at 1 o'clock, we are reopening the great room. And so I want to invite you all to come and join us. If you're worried about lunch, we have that for you. We got sandwiches, salads, drinks, everything uh, that you might need to fill your belly and just take a look at this phenomenal new room uh, that we, we just, our staff has done a phenomenal job. The, the contractors did a great job. It, it, it looks like a totally different place. And I mean that in a really good way. So again, right after this service, come and join us. That'll start at one o'clock with a ribbon cutting and then we'll have a, a brief ceremony, a prayer, and then we'll eat lunch together and enjoy that room together. All right. Looking forward to all these things together, but it all starts this morning with the proclamation of God's word. So first Samuel chapter 16, that's where we're going to be. One of the, um, one of the more difficult things that I've had to do in my years of ministry, particularly when I work with multiple churches, was to go into a church environment and counsel them, lead them, guide them through the next steps after one of their pastors had disqualified himself morally. That is a very, very difficult time. It's very traumatic, not just for the individual and his family. It's traumatic for the church. This man that they have looked up to has let them down uh, through sexual indiscretion, financial indiscretion, some other kind of thing. He couldn't control his temper. Uh, he did something that just ultimately disqualified me. He had to be removed from the ministry. And when I walk into that environment, two groups tend to kind of rise up in the midst of that environment. The first group, I'll call them the grace group. These are the people that they look at this man and they, they think rightly of all the good that he did. And their immediate conclusion is, God can forgive him, why can't we? And what they mean by that is, let's just stick him back into the pulpit and pretend this never happened after all. And the things that, you know, the justification they'll use for this is, God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. God forgives us and remembers our sins no more. So why can't we do that? 
And while it's well-intentioned, it often forgets the principle that this man has disqualified himself and for the good of the church, the redemptive thing to do, not just for the church, but also for him, is to give that guy some time to get the healing that he needs and provide him what he needs so that God willing, maybe he could get back into the game at some point, but not at this point. The church is not the pastor. The pastors are there to serve the bride of Christ. And when they disqualify themselves, they don't provide the service that God would have them to provide. Now, that's the grace group. The other group that tends to rise up when something like this happens is what I'll call the justice group. They tend to walk in with a really short piece of rope looking for a tall tree, right? Hang him high, hang him long, leave his body up there until it completely decays so that the next guy that comes through here knows how we deal with people who don't live the way they should live right and so it's it's not it's not even just a justice thing it's like a no compassion cut him off no counseling for the family no severance pay no anything he just completely gets cut off and what both of these groups tend to miss is the creation the, the, the image of god and the fall in the same guy see see the, the the grace people have forgotten that sin has consequences the justice people have forgotten that yeah, this guy did a really bad thing, but he also baptized your kids, cried with you at the graveside, uh, performed your wedding, did all these things. I mean, he's been there at these, these incredible, great and horrible moments of your life. And, and the reason we, and so oftentimes in a church like that, those two groups will turn on each other and it creates even greater trauma. And it's a really sad thing. Here's the reason why that happens. It's because we have a very hard time seeing what we say we believe. See, what we say we believe is that human beings are at one and the same time created in the image and likeness of God. They bear the image of God. They're worthy of dignity. They're worthy of respect. They're, they're worthy of, of, of fulfilling their God-given destiny. At the same time, we teach that, that those same people created in God's image are fallen in sin and that they're prone to do horrible things sometimes. And the difficulty is when we look at another person, we have a hard time seeing both of those things simultaneously, don't we? We look at a person at their good moments and we just can't fathom them doing something ungodly. We look at an individual in their worst moment and we just can't fathom that God would ever redeem that situation. And let's just be honest with each other. There are times you look in the mirror and you can't do it, can you? You look in the mirror and you either see all good or all bad. You have a very difficult time sometimes even being honest with yourself. And one of the great things about the profile of the life of the man we're going to look at today is it gives us a phenomenal glimpse into both the image of God and the fall and how we see both of those embodied in the same man, a man by the name of David. Now, if you've joined us for the first time this year, we're in the middle of a series called The Story, where we're moving from Genesis to Revelation, taking about six months to cover the broader storyline of the Bible, hitting all the high points, flying at about 30,000 feet, very fast, hitting the high points, to give everyone with an earshot of our church a sense of that storyline so they know how to understand Scripture better because they know how whatever it is that they're reading fits in with that larger story. So a little bit of review. Uh, scripture has four movements in it. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And we've seen these kind of unfolded as we've moved through this story together. We've seen, for example, that God created us in his image and likeness. Last slide, guys. Moving too fast. He created us in his image and likeness. He created our first parents, put them in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it and to bring him glory and to fulfill the destiny for which they were created. Very 
quickly into the story. Our first parents rebel. The result is they're placed outside the garden. And you and I, as a result, have lived ever since in a world that is outside that garden. And the vast majority of the world ever since has lived in a place that puts them outside of fellowship with their creator. But very early in the story as well, God answers even that that act of disobedience. And he says, I'm going to send someone to fix this. I'm going to put warfare between you, that is the serpent, the, 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 the snake, Satan, who tempted our first parents. I'm going to put warfare between you and a seed of the woman. I'm going to send the Messiah in the world. He's going to come and fix this. And he's not just going to redeem us and forgive our first parents and everyone who came after them of their sin. He's also going to be responsible for restoring everything back into its original order. And throughout the history of the Bible, we see that happening. We see him initiating that in history, beginning in Genesis chapter 12 with a man named Abraham. And Abraham's son, Isaac. Isaac's son, Jacob. Jacob's son, Joseph. Then we see a generation later, Moses. Then we see, as we saw a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Chris brought the message on the the period of the judges. And then last week, we looked at the beginning of the period of the United Monarchy, the time of King Saul. Being, having risen up. And, and we ended last week looking at this tragic life of this man named Saul. So in the midst of all of this, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, there is a real world with real history and real people moving and weaving throughout this plan that God has. And, and where we left off last week was this tragic reign of Saul that comes to an end. And God says to him, I am going to take your kingdom away from you and give it to another. Take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 13. Your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. Now that, as I said last week, had to hurt. Because it's not just that you're having the kingdom taken away. It's the reason why. God is saying to you, you do not share my heart. I have to go to someone who shares my heart. Now that sometimes can surprise some of us in a negative way because if you've grown up or spent a lot of time in church, you've probably heard this phrase before, well, you can't judge somebody's heart. And in an ultimate sense, that's actually right. That's actually correct. There's no way that you can understand all the intricacies of my heart. There's no way I can understand all the intricacies of yours. But there is a principle that Jesus himself taught us in Luke chapter 6. He says the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So if you want a really good look at somebody's heart, look at their Twitter feed. That's what he's saying. Look at their Facebook page. Look at their Instagram page. Look at the way they treat other people. Look at the way they treat their family members. Look at the way they treat those who are below them in rank. Uh, What's happened here is that Saul's mouth, Saul's paranoia, Saul's envy, Saul's uncontrollable anger, Saul's absolutely erratic approach to leadership that resulted from all of that has resulted in his being revealed as a man who is not after God's own heart. And so God says, I'm taking the kingdom away from you and I'm going to give it to another because I need someone after my own heart who's going to do this. And so with that, Samuel then is instructed by God to go to Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, he's going to meet a a man named Jesse. And Jesse's youngest son 
is the next one who will be anointed by God. This is the one who will replace both Saul and Jonathan, Saul's son, and will become the next king of Israel. He's a young shepherd, and his name is David. Now, here's the thing about David, right as we begin this story of, him, of his, is, is that even though he has been named the king, Saul still holds the office of king. And he hasn't passed from the scene yet. And since Saul doesn't consider abdicating his throne, only his death can bring David into the positional role that God is preparing him for. And so David begins his anointing, not as a king, but as actually having to serve under a king. And, and moreover, a king with really, really bad character. So, so let's take a look at how David begins to emerge and rise up within the kingdom. We'll start with David the musician. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, not, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So this is how David gets introduced to Saul's court. He becomes a key figure in Israel's political life to, uh, to a large extent initially through his musical talents which should teach us something if we're in positions of leadership. You never know who your successor is going to be or where he or she is going to come from. Yeah, see, at some point, if God permits covenant to continue as a church, there will be a time in the future when Joel Rainey will no longer be the lead pastor. Who else, who's that going to be? I might be looking at him right now. I don't know. He may be down in our Kidman area. I don't know. You just never know. Saul's looking right at his successor and doesn't even realize it. This is how David gets introduced. But very, very quickly, the story starts to escalate. And so by the time we get to 1 Samuel 17, Israel is now once again at war with Philistia. And, they, and, and the Philistines have produced and present to the Israelites a man, a giant of a man. A nine-foot-tall guy with lots of weapons and heavy armor and a really bad temper. His name is Goliath. And Goliath calls out to the Israelite army, and he says, send out your best champion. And basically he's saying, let's do a cage fight. We'll do it to the death. So this is better than UCF. Like, this is all the way to the death. And whoever loses has to serve the other. And no one in Israel wants to do this. No one wants to do it. And so in, in the midst of this, this, this scenario, we read in chapter 17, verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and they were greatly afraid. So all these guys, all this armor, all this weaponry, nobody wants to go out and face this guy until this little guy, probably no bigger than about 5 foot 10, 5 11, ruddy in appearance, a shepherd. He's not even part of the, the Israelite military at this point. He's coming out to check on his brothers. He becomes enraged at what he hears. And his first response is, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Okay. You, you remember that Hanna-Barbera cartoon, Scooby-Doo? Remember Scrappy? This is Scrappy. Little dude walks out, freaks out. He gets angry. I'm going to get him. Everybody else is freaking out. I can almost see his brothers going, would you shut up? You're going to get us killed. But he won't be quiet. He's angry. He's righteously angry. Even the king himself can't stop him from that. 
Even the king himself, realizing I'm not going to be able to stop him from going out there on what I see, at least from my vantage point, is an absolute suicide mission, at least put my armor on. David refuses even the armor. He meets Goliath out on the battlefield with only a staff, a slingshot, five stones, and the following words for the giant. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. This is trash talk, all right, at its height. This is what's going to happen to you. You're big and bad. You got your instruments. I'm about to remove your head from you. And then we're going to do similar stuff to all of your compatriots behind you. And the buzzards are going to have a feast today on the armies of Philistine. That's what's going to happen to you. You ever, um, guys, you ever been like really, really close to a physical altercation with another dude? And you're sizing him up. And you're, you you got a little more size than he does. And you've been watching him. You really can't even put into words what you're looking for. But you're watching, you're watching the way he moves, the way he reacts. And you're, you're just sizing him up. And in a split second, there's one side of you that goes, I can take him. But you still back away because there's this look in his eye. And, and you walk away because that dude's crazy. This, this is David. This is David, nine foot tall guy looking down. I mean, can you see what his eyes might have looked like when he says this? But Goliath, unfortunately, he's big and brawn, but apparently very small in brain. He doesn't get this. This guy's going to take me down. Moreover, he doesn't understand that he will not so much die today by the hands of David as he will by the might of David's God. And so David meets him on the battlefield, one shot to the forehead, drops this giant like a cloth. David then runs over, grabs his sword, cuts off the giant's own head with the giant's own sword. And in one instant, this virtually unknown shepherd from Bethlehem becomes a national war hero. Now, this guy, everybody in the kingdom knows who he is. He's incredibly popular to the extent that the facts of his military conquest begin to become urban legend. Take a look at chapter 18, verses 7 to 9. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. <laughs> That's not real. That's, you ever seen Braveheart? Right? William Wallace killed 50 men. 50 as if it were one. Yeah, that, that's, that's what this is. This is hyperbolic. This is, guys, this is what happens when you go fishing. All right? And it starts this big and it ends up this big. Right? That's what this is. And, but Saul can't see past that. He can't understand. This is, this is hyperbolic. They're trying to celebrate him. This isn't real. Saul can't get past the jealousy because David's getting more press than he is now. And now all of a sudden there's this jealousy. Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. And Saul eyed David, and not in a good way. From that day on, Saul now becomes, or David now becomes, not just, not just a musician, not just a warrior, but a rival. A rival. And this jealousy comes out in erratic ways. He tries to kill David with a spear while David's playing the harp. He sends David on a, the, the equivalent of a military suicide mission. He, he sends men to kill David while he sleeps. Now, here's the thing. In the midst of all of this, David doesn't just have superior character. To Saul, he also has superior military strength. 
twice David has the ability to kill Saul. And yet, he doesn't. He doesn't. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Now, you and I live in a dog-eat-dog kind of a world where that doesn't make any sense to us. We don't understand that. David's already been anointed king. God's spirit's been taken from Saul. Look at the way you're suffering under him. Some of you may look at that and it doesn't make any sense to you because some of you may have a boss like Saul. You're like, I got better character. I could run this place better than him, better than her. I don't understand why he or she is in that role and I'm in this role. And, And maybe there's even some legitimacy in your claim. Like they're really a person of bad character. You ever had to serve under somebody like that? I've been in that position before where I had to serve. See, I, I answered the call to ministry and I went into vocational ministry thinking that I would, anybody I worked for, I mean, they had reverend behind their name. They had to be godly. You can laugh at that. That was intended to be funny. They got reverend behind their name. They, people call them pastor. They got to be godly. And wow, were my eyes opened. And, and, and there are times when, when I've had to be subject, be subject to somebody whose character wasn't what it should have been. And I've, I've watched those kinds of things go down. It's, it's incredibly unpleasant. David is now in this situation. This is the situation in which the follower's character is superior to that of the leader. And yet David continues to play his role and trust in the Lord. And for a time, David served under a man of horrible character in order for God to be able to build David's character. Because David is going to be king. David, as we're going to see in just a moment, is going to build an empire. You can't really do that successfully and in a long-term way without character. But David has that built into him by God who puts them in it. Now, again, that's not saying that you need to always subject yourself to someone with bad character. It's not saying you need to be a doormat in a company. If there's somebody who's really hurting you, they're probably hurting the company and the organization as well, and there are legitimate ways to take care of that person. I'm not telling you to just remain a doormat, but what I am telling you is there are times when we have to go through periods when we're subject to those whose character is lacking, whose skill is lacking, and oftentimes the very reason God puts us in those situations is so that he can work on us. What kind of a thing? I mean, I'll never forget somebody telling me, Joel, the greatest lesson you will ever learn is how to manage up. How to take the guy above you, the gal above you, and make them better by the way you follow that individual. That's what we see in David. And the result is by the time David ascends to the throne, he builds a kingdom. Look at David the king builder in 2 Samuel chapter 2. David brought up his men who were with him, everyone in his household, and they came, lived in the towns of Hebron. And the man from Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And from that point, we see an empire beginning to unfold. Under David's reign, Jerusalem was taken away from the Jebusites and made the capital city of Israel. David then takes the Ark of the Covenant, brings it into Jerusalem, making it effectively both the political and the religious capital of that kingdom. He conquers surrounding nations. He extended the borders of Israel as far as they had ever been in their history or ever would be again. And Israel under David becomes arguably the most powerful nation in the world at that time. David is a kingdom builder. David is a superpower builder. And David does all of these things because he is created in the image and likeness of a God who intended David to take dominion. 
and David takes dominion. Now the question then is, what do we see most clearly about David's life? Remember the movements of the, of the narrative of the Bible overall. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The life of King David vividly portrays all of these things. Okay, so let's move through these together, beginning with creation. And we've already said this, David, in the image of God, he writes and creates music and art. He takes dominion over his enemies. He builds kingdoms. What we see in the life of David, at least in his early life, is a small glimpse of the purpose that God has for every single one of us to fulfill our God-given destiny and purpose to take dominion over the earth, to create and to do all of these things as an act of worship to our God who has placed us here as kings and regents in his stead over the planet. David does this in his defeat of Goliath, in his creation of music, in his building of an empire. David reflects the creative order of the God in whose image he has created. Here's the other thing you have to know about David. Simultaneous with this, the thing that is hardest to see when we're looking at the mirror or when we're looking at another person is David is also fallen in sin. And this begins to come about, we begin to see this most clearly in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Chapter 11, excuse me. David goes out on his rooftop and he sees a woman. Her name is Bathsheba. She's bathing. She is a beautiful woman. She's a naked woman. She's also a very married woman. Married, in fact, to Uriah, one of David's soldiers who's been faithful to him in battle. But apparently, at this point in time, that doesn't matter so much to David. And so he uses the power of his office to summon her to his chamber, brings her in, sleeps with her, then sends her back home, thinking to himself, I would imagine, nobody will ever find out. That's always the dumbest thing any sinner ever said. Nobody will ever find out. Somebody found out. Because Bathsheba comes back to him, I would imagine somewhere between four and six weeks away from this encounter. And says there's, there's evidence of this encounter. She's pregnant. And her husband is off at war. There's no way he did this. And so David now finds himself in a dilemma. What is he going to do? He calls for his general, Joab. He sends Joab after Uriah. brings Uriah back from the battlefield. I imagine he probably puts his arm around this soldier who's fought for Israel faithfully. Smiles at him. Thanks him for his service to his country. Thanks him for all he's done to battle for the people of God. And then says something along the lines of, I'd like to reward you for what you have done. Go home. Sleep in your own bed. Sleep under your own roof. Eat some good food. And uh, while you're at it, spend some time with your wife. Now, I didn't put this one on the, on the slideshow because I want you to hear these words. Because this is Uriah's response to King David. The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. What you're hearing are the words of a man who has honor. A man who's fighting for something bigger than himself, and he realizes that. And because he realizes that, he says, this is a very tempting offer, but I will not see my wife. I will not eat food. I will not sleep under my own roof when the ark of God itself remains under a temporary tent. And when the men I've been fighting alongside will sleep under the stars tonight. No, I will not do it. And once again, now we have a scenario where the follower is of higher character than the leader. So David says, what do I do now? So as he sends Uriah back, he gives this order 
to General Joab. Send him to the front. Now, if you fought in an active forward area in the U.S. military, you know when you're on the front lines, your chances of dying go, go up exponentially, even in the 21st century. But think about this for a moment in the context of ancient warfare. Okay? There's no foxhole to hide in. There's no automatic weapon to protect yourself with. There's no navy with artillery in the nearby ocean to fire over. There's no air force flying over, bombing your enemy. It's just you and the other side, and you're running toward one another at wide open speed in a completely open field carrying clubs and chains and all kinds of sharp barbed instruments and things that will dismember and maim and kill. So when Joab in the ancient world says to you, you're on the front today, you're done. And that's exactly what happens to Uriah. And David thinks he's got this covered up. But thank God the story doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. And, and it doesn't end there because there's hope for David. See, if you covered your sin up and you think, man, nobody's ever found out about it, you should worry for your soul. You should worry for your soul. It's not that God doesn't care. It's not that you got away with it. It could very well be that God's turned away. Three times in Romans chapter 1, he says of, of a people living in Corinth, God gave them over. Pray that that hasn't happened to you. There's hope for David because of what happens next. That is redemption. And look how redemption starts. Chapter 12 of 2 Samuel verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. We talked last week about this relationship between king and prophet. For Saul, it is Samuel. For David, it is now Nathan the prophet. God sends Nathan in. And Nathan doesn't have a real fun job at this point with the king. He confronts the king and he begins with a story. He says, king, there was a man, uh, a poor man, and he had one lamb. There was another man lived in the same area who had multiple flocks. And he took the lamb, the one lamb that the poor man had. What should happen to this man? And David becomes enraged. And he says, that man should die. It's amazing how hyped up our sense of justice can get when we're not looking in the mirror. Isn't it? But it's almost as if Nathan holds up a mirror in response. Nathan said to David in chapter 12, verse 7, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Now, to some of you, that may look funny because all of that is under this heading of redemption. But redemption always begins with a confrontation. Always, whether it's an intervention with an alcoholic or a drug addict, whether it is the, the culminating collision of the Holy Spirit up against a rebellious person who's rebelled against the will of God, redemption always starts with confrontation over your sin. And it is an act of love. It's an act of love. Paul tells us this in Romans. Uh, take a look at chapter, uh, chapter 2 of Romans, verse 4. He says there, Do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Some of you, every time somebody confronts you over something, you run. 
and you put yourself at risk spiritually every single time you do it. You need to understand, yeah, there can be judgy people in the world that are just big jerks and are trying to find fault in everybody else, but there are also people, God willing, who are surrounding you, maybe in your small group, they love you, and when they confront you in your sin, they do it for your own good, and you do not need to run. You need to, in the name of Jesus, listen to them because they're seeking to bring you back from the edge of a cliff. That's what Nathan's doing here. He's not just trying to be ugly. He's doing this because he loves the king. If he were just a fanboy on some religious advisory committee, he wouldn't love the king. He confronts the king. He calls the king to repentance. And the result is that David can get his heart back in sync with God. You've probably heard, if you've been walking with the Lord any length of time, or if you've been in church life any length of time, something like this. David was a, a liar and a murderer and an adulterer, and he was still a man after God's own heart. That is not true. There is not one syllable of Scripture that props that up. None. None. God seeks a man after his own heart and finds him in David, and then David, through his sin, gets out of sync with the heart of God, which is why Nathan confronts David. Because David's got to get back in sync. How do we know this? Well, Psalm 51 is David's prayer written out to God after his sin with Bathsheba. And at the heart of it are these two verses. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities and create in me a clean heart. What's he saying? I want to be a man after your own heart again. My heart is out of sync with yours. Create a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. David repents. David repents. And even though he does, forgiveness is not enough. Does that sound strange to say in a Christian church? Forgiveness of your sins is not enough. Not for God. He loves you more than that. His aim is not just to forgive us of sin. His aim is to restore us. Because if there's just forgiveness, there's still dirt. There's still consequences. And temporarily, we begin to see those in the life of David. I've seen them in the modern world with people that I've pastored. There's one gentleman that I know, wonderful man of God, leader in his church, struggles to this day, and has been for more than a decade with hepatitis C due to an alcohol addiction that he had years ago. And he's been clean a long time, and God has forgiven him. But those temporary consequences for that sin, they will be there more than likely until he meets Jesus. We see this in the life of David as well, the death of an infant child, family dysfunction it, that includes actually the rape of his daughter uh, by, at the hand of, his, of her half-brother, Amon. We see ping-ponging off of that, Absalom's anger, David's other son, toward Amon. And the resulting disobedience and dishonoring of the king that results in Absalom's own death. There's a ripple effect to the king's sin that continues, which is why God doesn't just forgive. His intent is eventually to restore. So in David's life, we don't just see creation, fall, redemption. We see restoration. Restoration. First in the, in the birth of Solomon, one child dies, but another is born. And it's not that the second one replaces the first one. Anybody who's a parent who's lost a child knows that's just not the way it works. But it is in this way. The line of David will continue. 
and it will continue through Solomon, and it will continue for eternity. This is David's connection to the fact that God isn't just going to forgive. He's going to restore it all. In 1 Chronicles 17, 14, I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Remember, there are four covenants in the Old Testament that continue to this day. Everlasting. The covenant with Noah. Thank God, no more floods. Covenant with Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the world through you. This is the third one. The covenant with David. And it simply says this. From David's time until eternity, there will always be someone from the line of David occupying the throne of Israel. Now, that puzzles some of you because you know the rest of the story. If it doesn't puzzle you because you don't know the rest of the story, let me fill you in so you'll know why your neighbors are confused. It's because a couple of generations from now, this kingdom that David has built is going to weaken severely and it's going to split. Then those two kingdoms progressively over the next hundreds of years are going to weaken until they are conquered by the Assyrians and the Babylonians respectively and they will not exist anymore as a kingdom for hundreds of years. By the time we get to the time of Jesus, they've come back to their homeland, but they're still under Roman occupation. Seventy years after the time of Jesus, they will not exist anymore. Jerusalem will be toppled. They will not exist again until 1948. And for those of you who are still puzzled, you have a right to be because you look at what exists now over in the Middle East and you go, I don't see a Davidic dynasty. That's right. It's not there. It's not a monarchy. It's a British parliamentary system run by a prime minister. So if you're wondering, did God break his promise to David? Did he really break his promise to David? Where's the king? If you're looking to Israel to fulfill that, you're looking in the wrong place. Take a look at Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Now, take a look at what the author of Hebrews does. He takes this psalm and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, applies it to who? Jesus. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. David's line, the promise of the restoration of the entire cosmos, is not a guarantee or a promise to Israel alone. It is a promise to the whole world. God will restore everything. And the hope of the line of David is not found in the continuation of a nation called Israel. The hope of David is in the seed. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. The covenant with David doesn't depend on the endurance of the nation of Israel. It depends on the emergence of an ultimate Israelite. And roughly 1,000 years after this point, we're going to see the emergence of that Israelite. He will emerge after the pattern of his ancestor David, who was an unknown shepherd from Bethlehem, who rose to become the king of the, the most powerful nation in the world at that time, a thousand years later, his successor, the one who will come after him, will be a relatively unknown carpenter from that same town, and he will not rise to become anything. He will be revealed as the king of the universe. This is the promise to David. 
And it is a promise that through that ultimate Israelite, the world will be set back the way it was supposed to be. And David, the adulterer, the murderer, who confessed his sins, who received a clean heart, now stands in the line that is initiated that will terminate with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And this sinner now plays a key role in the restoration of all things. And if you're sitting there and sucking air, God has the same kind of plan for you. That's his plan for us. He wants to include us in that. He is redeeming the covenant. That's why I say forgiveness is not enough. You don't come here to get your sins forgiven, your get-out-of-hell-free card. That's not what we're about, okay? That's a great bonus. But you come to Christ to get Christ and to play a role in the restoration of all things. We're going to talk about the identity, the purpose, and the mission of the church this fall in a series that we're going to cover after the summer months, and we're going to get a little bit more into that. But for right now, I can tell you, you and I have essentially the same call as David, and that is to play our part in the redemption of all things. And you can't do that unless you, like David, have a clean heart. Unless you and I, like David, recognize who we are, where we come from, and we see the whole person when we look in the mirror. So who do you see when you look in the mirror? Who do you see? I am, um, some of you, you may get up every morning, you may look and you see nothing but the bad. Maybe that's because you grew up in an abusive home that taught you not to see anything but that. I don't know what your background is, but you, that's what you were taught. And you need to understand that you bear the image of the glory of God. And God has powerful, powerful purpose for you. Some of you, maybe the other way. Because again, we have, we have a hard time seeing both when we look in the mirror. Some of you, you only see the good. You know the bad is there, but you're kind of pressing it down. You're doing what Paul talks about in Romans. You're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. I've seen guys who can put on a really good show, and there's all kinds of addiction going on underneath the surface. There's all kinds of dysfunction and sin and rebellion going on underneath the surface, and they just keep it pressed down. They keep it pressed down like an 80-year-old woman trying to look like she's 20, right? They just keep it, just, just press it down, press it down. Everything's fake. Everything's stretched. Everything's covered up. The crap's still there. Occasionally, some of it oozes out. And you got to pull it back in because I got to hide this stuff. And when you look in the mirror in the morning, that's what it's for. So I can look and I can make sure that my stuff is not showing so that I look good in the eyes of the world. And you need to know that's the same pride that got Satan kicked out of heaven and Adam kicked out of the garden and it will send you to hell. Don't keep covering that stuff up. God has a way for you to get rid of it completely and have a clean heart and become a new person. And all of that happens. All of that happens through the king of Israel. The king who followed in the line of David, who reigns now and will reign forevermore. And he offers you pardon and amnesty for everything you've ever done. All you got to do is run to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a, the outline of an amazing life in King David. Thank you, Lord, that you show us the full person. Even as difficult as it is for us sometimes to see the good and the bad simultaneously, you, you, don't, you don't shirk back from showing that to us. 
in a figure like him and in so many other figures throughout the Bible. And so as we prepare for communion, Lord, I pray that our hearts are in sync with yours. I want to ask you to, to create a clean heart, renew a right spirit within your people corporately as we begin to, to prepare for this moment. And I ask in the name of Jesus that you would be lifted high, that those who may have walked into this building and have no hope would understand who you are. That you took a lying, adultering murderer. You created a clean heart. You renewed a right spirit. And you used his line to deliver the very Messiah into this world that can do exactly the same thing for anyone who turns from their sins and puts their faith in him. And so I pray that we are a people filled with hope when we leave this morning because of what you've done for us in the person of Christ. And I ask these things in Jesus' name.